sometimes people forget in hospitality you know doing that you know extra thing or going that extra mile for our guests I think is key and I'm really proud that we have a, a large group of people that are wanting to do that and, and and do do that on the reg I think that's what I love most about this job this is the deep in the weeds podcast I'm Anthony Huckstep There are many small hospitality groups across the country with a handful of venues that are often the same or similar offerings in each venue. But there's a few that have chanced their arm on multiple cuisines with great success. What does it take to run these from the top and ensure the food offering maintains the standards across multiple cuisines and offerings? Amanda Fuller is the group executive chef of the Sam Prince Hospitality Group. Amanda, how are you? I'm well, thank you so much, Tuck. How are you? I'm good. It's good to get you on the show. You've got a pretty incredible sort of group there with very different offerings. What's it like for you sort of overlooking all of those uh, different restaurant brands? It's, It's fun, I guess. In short, it's fun to oversee a diverse group that has such different offerings from venue to venue, yet so many consistencies at the same time. Well, tell us just a little bit about the group and and the different uh, restaurants that you do have. So we're a small group, as mentioned. Um, we have three venues in Sydney um, and two in Melbourne, which we we, re- we branched out to Melbourne uh, two and a bit years ago. So we have Mexico, which is um, our flagship restaurant on uh, on Pitt Street, that just celebrated its tenth birthday. So we're super proud. I think in this, you know, during the times that we've just had of recent years um you know to make 10 years is a pretty massive milestone um which we're very very proud of our market to table offering at mexico is what sets us apart i suppose and our large extensive tequila um you know we have 20 250 different types of tequila mezcal at mexico so that's a pretty attractive draw card for um you know a fun evening and an education piece that we offer that goes behind that. Um, we also have Kid Kyoto, who was our newest opening in Sydney, I suppose, um, which opened five years ago. It's a modern take on uh, Japanese izakaya. Um, our success there, I think, you know, was a slow burn, if I'm honest, but, you know, consistency and um, innovation is what sets us apart there, I, I suppose. We have, you know, an extensive sake list and a Japanese whiskey list and a very innovative menu that changes frequently with a very talented head chef uh, at the helm. Indu is our middle child, I suppose. It's about seven years old. We offer um, modern Sri Lankan, South Indian food, but, you know, we need to you know, communicate that it's not just about curries. You know, we have lots of um, innovative things on the menu, string hoppers. Um, you know, obviously we do have curries, but hoppers and doses and, you know, ceviche-style dishes, lots of vegetarian, vegan offer, offers. Um, Indus a real sensory overload business with, you know, beautiful texture seats and lovely lighting and a really cool playlist um, that a kind of a place that takes you away once you get through the entrance. It's a very sensory, amazing venue um, on George Street in one of the oldest buildings in Sydney, which is really great. <clears throat> and then our two businesses in Melbourne. So we tried to emulate um, Mexico's success in Melbourne, um, which, you know, has been bumpy, if I'm honest, due to COVID and, you know, the numbers of people 
don't seem to have returned in Melbourne like they have here. Um, and, and Indu, so we have picked up the best bits of Indu, the textures and the dining scene and put it on Collins Street, which has been a challenge because Melbourne is obviously very different to Sydney, but um, a fun escape nonetheless. You've got like three very incredibly different cuisines. How did you go about deciding sort of what cuisines to move forward with and, and execute them so well? To be honest, the... Um, Sam Prince is the creative mind behind the decisions to, to do these cuisines. Um, Mexican is a passion of his, which is how Mexico was born. Um, Indu Sam Prince is Sri Lankan, so the meth- like the story behind Indu kind of comes from you know going back to the village and his roots of culture and you know hospitality that he um, wanted to have bring to Sydney. Um, and Kid Kyoto, you know, came about from a, a trip to Japan, I believe, that, you know, they wanted to bring something to Sydney that was a little bit different to what's happening at present. And there's a very big focus on music um, at Kid Kyoto. It was supposed to be a bit of a music rights, the menu kind of vibe. And all of our restaurants have a really big emphasis on, you know, playlists. We don't just play whatever's cool on Spotify at the time. We have specific curated um, albums that play in our venues that you'll find in Sydney and Melbourne. So continuity across the both, you know, it's a lot of Beatles and the White Album and stuff in Hindu and, you know, in, uh, Kid Kyoto is a bit more rock grunge and Mexico is a bit more mix, smash, DJ um, combinations of songs that, you know, you would remember from, you know, 10, 15 years ago, less so the current stuff. You mentioned the cuisines are very different, but the the structure and the systems to make them successful, there's a commonality there. I want to explore that in a little while in depth, but take us back to when you were young. What sort of role did food play with you growing up? Um, I think I probably wasn't as exposed to, you know, food as much as, you know, some of my peers. You know, I grew up in the inner west in Sydney and, you know, my parents were, you know, my mum's a nurse and my dad was, you know, in printing. So we were a pretty average blue-collar family that, um, you know, didn't really dine out, you know, out of our area. And, you know, I really felt like I wanted more. I went to school with a lot of cultural kids and, you know, my boring lunches didn't fare up to theirs so much. And then as I got older, I guess, you know, the gap just widened and I wanted to explore more and school, you know, whilst I loved the social element, it wasn't somewhere I particularly enjoyed being. So becoming a chef was something that, you know, I I really wanted to do more or less off my own bat. Nobody I knew was a chef, you know, I, I hadn't dined out heaps as a kid. So it was just something that I was interested in. I, you know, I did hospitality at school, like most people and my hospitality teacher certainly wasn't super inspiring, but it definitely evoked something in me that wanted to chase a little bit of the unknown. So I started my apprenticeship quite young and um, I went to ride TAFE and I you know, met a lot of people that were working at some really cool places and institutions. And kind of off the back of that, I, f- I finished my apprenticeship in Sydney and I moved off to Ayers Rock as a, as a young commie chef. Yeah, just to, I guess, get out of home and leave Sydney. And I always have this penchant for things that I'm not quite too sure about and throw myself into it with both feet and then swim, I guess. 
So I worked at Airstrock for a few years and there I met some really awesome, inspiring chefs that came from all walks of life because, you know, no one's born and from Airstrock, everybody's from somewhere else. So there's lots of stories and pieces to link together through people that are joined through common interest of cooking and, you know, hospitality. Do you have any stories of what it was like while you were there and the sort of first time experiences with ingredients you hadn't seen before? Like so many stories. Like I recall we used to do um, events where people would want like witchetty grubs and, you know, we had to like apply to the elders to, they would, we would have to buy them from the Aboriginals there. And sometimes you could get them and sometimes you couldn't for religious reasons, but getting them in and, you know, having to tiptoe around them because they were, you know, back then in early 2000s, they were like $50 each, super expensive and having to treat them with care. But, you know, we'd, receive this you know disgusting bowl of these filthy bugs that were still alive that we'd have to gently wash and and prepare and serve that was really cool because it wasn't as simple as pulling it out of the cool room or and and it wasn't always consistent sometimes we could get them sometimes we couldn't so that was quite cool receiving like a dirty bunch of um alive filthy worms that was, you know, but that was so amazing because they were so unique and something that I've never seen since. Um, that was a really great experience. And I think, you know, not so much a food thing, but just having, you know, a road train that had like three trailers pull up to bring our produce was, you know, an epic, an epic time because, you know, all chefs would have to stop what they were doing and kind of create like a chain and, you know, you'd pass ingredients from the truck to one chef to next chef, next chef, next chef, and it would slowly fill the cool room. And you knew that that's all you had until the next road train came. So that was something that I wasn't used to at the time that I remember thinking what a profound impact it had on me because, you know, now we take for granted you can get two or three deliveries a day, whereas back then it was this is what you got until the next train comes. So, you know, make sure you don't waste anything. And I guess that's where, um, you know, utilising everything kind of came into me personally because you kind of had to. There was no, oh, God, we've just run out of something. Let's go get it. It just wasn't possible. Uluru was such a unique um, place and experience that you you had. Um, but where did you go to from there? So I worked at Ezra Rock for two and a half years and it was some of the best fun times of my life, cooking on sand dunes with no power or whatever. And it was so, so impactful in my life. And after that, um, I moved to Tasmania to, I guess I went from the hottest place ever to the wettest coldest place ever I moved to a um the west coast of Tasmania where the salmon and trout farms are um wasn't really what I expected when I went there and the story to get there was is a bit unusual but yeah I landed in Tassie for two years and worked with seafood scallops and crayfish and hake and yeah heavily a heavily seafood menu um in Tassie for a couple of years and Tassie was such a different place to Ezrock for obvious reasons totally different type of tourists um locals you know it's a very small fishing village four hours from Hobart it was a very isolating experience but of a different kind compared to Ezrock less staff less camaraderie oh my goodness, sorry less camaraderie so it was a very um completely polar opposite experience that was very enjoyable what were some of the really key sort of venues and people that you worked under as you were sort of slowly building your career? 
I think, you know, I, you know, I, I worked in unusual places, so the key venues were less known. You know, I worked in the fine dining restaurant in Ayersrock, Cunha, which had won awards in the Northern Territory and really focused on using um, Indigenous ingredients. But I think it was a little bit ahead of its time compared to, you know, now wattle seed, et cetera, is used quite widely, but it certainly wasn't in the early 2000s. Um, you know, I worked, I didn't necessarily work in, in places that are particularly well known, but I worked with profound people. Like I did events in Tasmania with Tetsuya um, and we did a lot of events in Ezrock with, um, well, four famous people, less so famous chefs. And my time in Sydney and I guess the Northern Territory in Tasmania were less in properties that were well known, but for some, did, did a lot of things with some distinguished people. I guess I, you know, the times of me working in places that were more well-known were more in London, I guess, which was where I moved to after Tassie. Yeah, take us to London. Was was that a bit of a shock for you compared to what you were used to? Yeah, massively. I think I, you know, went over on a working holiday visa like most people were um, in, you know, the early 2000s, hoping to, you know, work to fund travel exclusively, but it kind of ended up being the complete opposite for me. I worked more than I traveled, but I fell into a really great supportive job that was working for Oliver Payton, who at the time was, you know, a pretty big deal on TV. And yeah, kind of walked in off the street into a venue and asked if there was a position and, you know, the rest was kind of history. I was there for almost 10 years, um, started as a young, you know, young female blonde head chef and um, evolved into a group executive chef for 16 venues that were predominantly in really well-known institutions. Was um, a cra- It was crazy, but so awesome because it was such a phenomenal opportunity for me. You've uh, cooked for many people uh, in London. Was there any sort of notable sort of standout clients or experiences that you had? Yeah, I, 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 I was very lucky. We had lots just by nature of the location of the venues in London. Um, a lot of, you know, big deal people, I guess, came through the doors, but... Something that stands out to be quite – was super fun and um, incredibly rewarding was we did a No Meat Monday um, launch with Paul McCartney um, for his late wife's, you know, legacy of No Meat Monday. And we had an event. I used to run a restaurant called In the Park, which was in St. James's Park outside um, Buckingham Palace, just near the Mall. And this event that we had was full of everybody that was current at the time, Yoko Ono and – Sophie Ellis Baxter and um, Kelly Osborne and Paul McCartney's daughter, Stella McCartney, and it was just so A-lister filled. And, yeah, I worked with Paul McCartney and his team to replicate recipes and um, dishes that Linda was creating for this amazing event, and it was just the best. There were so many people there that were super important, for the, especially for the vegetarian scene, and having that, you know, meetings with Paul McCartney and his team was just was just wild. That was definitely a, um, a big moment in my career, I suppose, to be entrusted with working with him to execute something so important. It was awesome. With a, um, a role like that and also looking after 16 venues in the UK, tell us a little bit about your approach to food and, and um, your sort of uh, cooking in those circumstances back then. So I think my approach to food has always been to respectfully prepare it, not mess with things too much and, you know, focus on buying the best quality ingredients that you can at the time. And, you know, doing as little, with, little to it as you know possible to make sure that, 
you know, the fundamental flavors and profile is intact. And I think, you know, that's evolved certainly with these businesses with a lot of slow cooking and, <clears throat> you know, not, you know, a lot of um, labor needs to go into, you know, making a hopper batter and starting from scratch. So I guess my approach has evolved a lot, but there, you know, the waste-free stuff was just coming into play. So really having a nose-to-tail kind of um, approach, not to mess with things too much and focus on quality, sustainable, seasonal ingredients was is kind of my current approach as well. I think in Australia, the seasonality thing, you know, we all talk about it, but it's less prevalent than it is in the UK because the seasons are less defined, you know, case in point, the crazy heat wave that we just had last week and the week before. You know, our seasons aren't so definitive as they are over there. With your experiences um, in Tasmania and Uluru as well, did, do, you, do you feel an urge to have Indigenous sort of ingredients weave through your food as well? Not so much these days, if I'm honest. I think, you know, a lot of the flavours that we were using then are less complex now because there's more saturation for people um, using them and, and there's more availability, I guess. You know, there's companies now where you can, you know, buy certain spices, in you know, native spices um, quite easily, whereas back then, you know, in 2000, 2001, it wasn't really, um, it wasn't really commonplace, I suppose. But now, yeah, I don't necessarily, you know, we feel the need. We do use, you know, at Kid Kyoto, we use quite a few, but... Um, elsewhere we don't and I think it's probably a combination of you know saturation it's not as um, innovative I suppose as it used to be and and costs these days let's be honest it's getting tougher week by week to produce a profitable um, you know value meal for people so considering ingredients is really important and how they're best used sometimes you can sprinkle something with something that sounds really good, but if it's not adding anything to the dish, then it's kind of pointless inclusion. What brought you back to Australia? Family. I, um, I've got a couple of kids, so I had children over there and um, I'd been there for 10 years and I, yeah, came back for family, really. And things were starting to get a bit weird in the UK with Brexit and, you know, a lot of fundamental changes that, you know, were changing the way people were eating out and dining and I wanted to explore what had changed in Australia. You know, I'd been gone from Sydney for 15 years, a couple of years in Ayers Rock and a couple of years in Tassie that extended, you know, a bit. So 15 years is a long time to be away from home. Tell us about uh, your role at the Sam Prince Hospitality Group. How, how did that come about and what, what's the journey been like for you with it? Oh, it's, uh, you know, it's such a great diverse role that kind of happened by chance. I had... Um, a friend of mine that worked for Zambrero, who's part of this company also, and they put me through to somebody who knew somebody and I ended up with this role that didn't exist prior to me coming. And I, yeah, have intertwined myself in every asset of, facet of the business. It's a very inclusive, supportive, um, it's a very, yeah, inclusive, supportive team that, you know, has these diverse restaurants and, you know, we focus heavily on, um, growing our own staff and we take a lot of pride in retention and empowering people to run these businesses as their own and I think that's why I enjoy working here so much because whilst I'm group exec chef I'm also doing a lot of you know a lot of other things financials etc that I did in the UK that transfer well here I have good financial overview and understanding of how a business operates and I think that's the value that I add to this business alongside 
you know, mentoring and growing chefs and making sure that our offer is consistent and concise so that our guests have a wonderful experience, you know, from a food perspective and also from a service perspective, mentoring young guys to help make these businesses, you know, great places to be. I want to talk a bit about mentoring. You have a, a major role with women in hospitality. Tell, tell us a little bit about that and, and your role within it. So I've been, you know, a friend, I suppose you could call it, of women hospitality for quite a few years. Um, you know, I like I mentioned, I've got I've actually got three children and I'm, I'm, I'm a mum and, and a chef. So I've been a friend of theirs for quite a few years and I joined them to help with the mentor program a few years ago as a mentor. I had a really great mentee who actually um, came into my venues and I get helped give her you know commercial cooking experience and now she's you know doing these wonderful cooking classes with Maeve Omar and she just has this amazing passion and light for food it's so great but just this year uh, I was asked to join the board of women hospitality so I'm super chuffed and proud to be um, standing alongside these phenomenal women who want to make change and lead a pathway for females in the hospitality sector. So it's all quite quite new, but I'm going to be heading up the mentor program, which I'm very familiar with. Um, we'll be taking, yeah, enrolments kind of now and launching in July. So I think, yeah, any hospitality women or, or men that want to have a mentor or want to have someone to help guide them through their career, whether it's, you know, chefs or people who are interested in bar work or whatever, I think it's a great organisation to shine a light on females. And I think it's warming to see that, you know, there's an interest and there are a lot, of, a lot more females in the business now than I think there ever has been. And I think that's great to see. We've had a lot of discussions on the podcast with people about how different kitchens and, and the industry are to a couple of decades ago. How, how much change has there been, you know, and, and what, what are you seeing is the landscape at the moment compared to um, a couple of decades ago? I think there's been infinite change, like so many points have changed that have, you know, really happened for the better. I think, you know, working hours for one, you know, when I was a young chef, you know, 80, 90 hours was kind of a normal week, whereas now, you know, my team don't really exceed 40 and a lot of places are, you know, no one's pushing over 42, which I think is outstanding because it's recognising that, you know, this career um, needs to kind of pair up with our with other careers, I suppose, and not, you know, um, and having a life out of work, I think that's really important. I think that the pay gap is closing. I think that whilst it's very expensive as a business to, you know, absorb increased labour costs, I think it's important that chefs um, and the hospitality industry are recognised to be, to be paid more, you know, fair days work for fair days pay has always been a bit of a saying that I've had, but I think it's good that that's kind of happened. I think that, you know, the flexibility in working hours has meant that a lot of people, women, including myself, have been able to stay within within the sector. You know, mums always fall into primary care, care roles and, you know, I feel so lucky to be able to work for an organisation that's supportive in that and, you know, we have teams, um, you know, and people that are parents within our business and I think it's important to recognise that, you know, being flexible helps with retention, which helps with, you know, customer satisfaction because our staff are happy. I think that, you know, the pay gap, the, you know, flexible or understanding working hours, um, you know, a, a massive fundamental changes that needed to happen and were well overdue. And I really like that it's the norm now across the sector. And in turn, a lot more females. I, you know, we have a lot of female chefs in our business and managers and senior management that are female. And I think that, you know, it's, it's a telling way and 
I think once customers are more on board with perception of value and understanding that hospitality, you know, is more to be appreciated, I think that will go a long way as well. You mentioned that you opened uh, Mexico and Indu in Melbourne during the last couple of years, during a period of time that's been the most challenging for the industry. Well, what's what's that been like trying to get them up and running interstate with the um, with COVID and the multiple lockdowns? To be honest, really hard. You know, we opened. I, I was on the first flight out of Sydney from their lockdown. There was news crews, etc. There, and to be honest, it's been a real challenge. I think that Melbourne. Has, is taking longer to return to pre-COVID levels than Sydney has. Um, I was talking to a friend yesterday who runs, um, she looks after sh- supermarket shopping centres and, you know, their footfall is, hasn't picked up since pre-COVID levels either, which I took some comfort in, you know, wondering why things have been challenging for us. You know, you, you think that you have a successful recipe for a business in one state, therefore you hope to pick it up and replicate it in another state. And when the footfall isn't recovering as quick as you would like it's you know it's very challenging times to be very honest what sort of impact has that had on you personally and sort of your perceptions of the industry and what you want to get out of it look i think it's it's never a good feeling to know that you don't like you're not sure whether the recipe was correct and i think you know perseverance is is key um i'm confident that our offering and our our position in the in the industry is correct we just need to wait and they will calm I suppose be continue to be consistent and um, you know communicating our message and I think consistency is key if I'm really honest making sure that everybody that comes in has a great experience and it's matched up every time that they come and I you know that's kind of the base for all businesses if you give people you know if people have a great time they'll return and they'll tell their friends so that's kind of our key takeaway from Melbourne and hopeful that they'll recover. You mentioned that uh, your role is really quite diverse. Tell us about your relationship with the head chefs of each venue and how you work together. I have a really great relationship with all the head chefs. You know, my my role, I see my role is to not tell them, you know, what they should be doing, but kind of work alongside them and mentor them to help get to the, you know, personal food financial goals of our businesses. You know, I have an exceptional relationship with all of the head chefs because they've all been around for a long time. And I think that's testament to how we treat our staff and how we value the leaders in our business and also what we empower them to do. You know, we have, you know, retention is really important to us. And I think to all business, successful businesses, retention is key because if you invest in your people, they invest in you back. Um, you know, all of our, like our head chefs have been here for over five years, um, with the exception of Melbourne, obviously, because it's newer. Um, and Indu Sydney had a bit of a change of the guard about 18 months ago because the head chef had a family and it was becoming a bit challenging for him to manage. Um, but, yeah, I see my role as a mentoring role for them to help get them to where they need to go and, and where the business needs to be. So I work alongside them, supporting their decisions and helping them navigate what the office should be and what our guests want. How do you run multiple uh, venues so different that are so different? Um, what are some of the key things you know for those looking to expand to multiple venues themselves? I think it's just people having the right people, looking after your people, and empowering them to have the knowledge. You know, we are very transparent with all every every facet of our business, and I think that you know any expansion irrespective of what the offer is if you look after your people you know which obviously leads to retention 
then I and you know and you have the right systems in place and you know we're a systems heavy company which has helped us survive you know the last few years and be able to open new new businesses in other states you know I think that people is the key you need to look after your people and then they will look after you well you're doing incredible things with the um, Sam Prince Hospitality Group what, what do you love about what you do I love the diversity to be honest I love that we have you know, awesome teams that are super passionate about, um, you know, our food and beverage offer in, in venues that are really, you know, like sensory overload to come into. Um, you know, we have, you know, a lot of repeat patronage, which I think is testament to the teams on the ground and so many passionate individuals that work for us that want to be better all the time. You know, I think that's that's the best bit, knowing that you have a, a team of people around you that have a common a common goal to make sure that, you know, we are hospitable, which I think sometimes people forget in hospitality. You know, doing that, you know, extra thing or going that extra mile for our guests, I think is key. And I'm really proud that we have a, a large group of people that are wanting to do that and, do, and then do do that on the reg. I think that's what I love most about this job, being surrounded by like-minded people and having a really supportive employer that empowers us to do so well amanda it's amazing what you do and an honor to catch up with you today uh, please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon great i really appreciate the conversation thank you so much this is the deep in the weeds podcast i'm anthony huckstep stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector special thanks to executive producer rob Locke for making this all happen follow us on instagram at deep in the weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deep in the weeds.com.au stay safe and be well <laughs>